If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. And welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode 46 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go and check out the earlier episodes of this show and make sure you're subscribed so you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. A couple of things at the top, because this episode is coming after some important changes to, to the show. So this show, A Larger View of the Force, is now a part of the Clashing Sabres network of podcasts. So if you are listening to the show right now, you could be listening to it in one of two places. You are either listening to in the regular A Larger View of the Force feed that has existed all the way back since August of 2020, or you are listening to it in the Clashing Sabres feed. If you're in the second camp, I would like to give you an extra special welcome. And also, if you are in fact listening to it and you're like, episode 46, where's one through 45? I'm going to direct you to the original A Larger View of the Force feed. So go into whatever podcatcher you're listening to this now, go to the search bar, type in A Larger View of the Force, you will find that feed, and you will be able to find all of the backlog of episodes of the show. Moving forward, the show will continue to kind of simulcast in both feeds so that folks who are new to this, who are finding it via Clashing Sabers, will of course be able to listen to all new stuff, but then also people who have been subscribe to the regular feed over there. You guys don't have to switch over anything. You guys are going to keep getting things regularly so long as you're subscribed. So that's just a little notice there about that for anybody who may have popped in this and be slightly confused about what is going on. So there's that. So let's get into the topic du jour of this episode. So on this episode, we are talking about Andor. We are now a few weeks out from the completion of the first season. and There is a lot to talk about. It was really an extraordinary run of 12 episodes. So much good stuff to get into. And yeah, on this episode, I want to kind of dive deep into at least some of the themes and ideas that are introduced in the show. I'll talk a little bit in a second once I introduce the guests for this conversation about how the conversation is going to be structured. We're not going to go really in kind of episode by episode, blow by blow, because that would take way too long to do that, at least in the context of one episode but we're really going to look at some of the kind of big themes that the show is engaging with. And as I've already teased and said, and as you've probably seen from reading the episode description, I do have a special guest joining me for this conversation about Andor. She is a returning guest. She is one of the co-hosts of Followers of the Force, one of the organizers of the What Choice campaign, the record holder being on the longest episode of A Larger View of the Force. Also had Portellos with her a few weeks ago. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think your wife's still mad at me about the record holding, actually. <laughs> this is why we are recording this episode on an afternoon. The last the last time you were on the show, the first time you were on the show, when we were talking last, actually last December, it was about Rogue One. We were recording it in the evening. I learned my lesson, and that's why I was like, how about early afternoon? Yeah. We found out that Rachel really just talks until somebody stops me. It's great fun. <laughs> yeah. And so like if I you... said, we, we, I mean, we had Portillo's together. You've learned that I talk as much in person as I do on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you have not listened to our three hour long episode about Rogue One, go check that one out. That is quite 
a special episode. And you know what? It would just have been shorter if we had like done a movie commentary track. <laughs> it really would have, honestly. You would so do those, except for you guys would figure out exactly how much stupid stuff I say while watching <laughs> Star Wars movies. So yeah, I mean, after you know having that conversation about Rogue One. I, of course, you know, had you immediately peg my mind as, you know, Andor's coming out next year. Like, definitely going to have her back on to talk about Andor. And here we are now talking about Andor. So we're going to get into the show, a show that was, you know, I mean, so many people talked about it and now to the point where it's like kind of a cliche. The show that really is, has been a kind of standout among Star Wars shows. It's really unlike any other kind of Star Wars media thing we have ever gotten and yeah as as i mentioned at the top there there, there's so much deep stuff to get into and to pick apart with the characters and the storylines and so i want to get to some of the big ideas so the way that i kind of want to structure this conversation is i sort of have three big themes that i want us to go through and talk about the ways that the show kind of engages with it and these kind of roughly sort of overlap with the three main arcs although not really there'll be some bleeding and into other things that happen at other points and we'll of course you know talk about those things in the context of our conversation so the way that our our conversation about andrew is going to go is we're going to look at the ways that the show presents engages with deals with on the one hand fascism and sort of slash authoritarianism slash totalitarianism, you know, whatever words you want to use kind of in that bundle, resistance and the nature of resistance to said totalitarianism. And then the third bundle of things, which is prisons and particularly this idea that I sort of talk about once we get into it, which is the idea of the panopticon, which is this sort of concept and this sort of model of prisons and then has been kind of extrapolated to talk about sort of larger social institutions. And I'll sort of elaborate a little bit on that. And these kind of line up with the sort of three major arcs. So we got like the, the, the fascism theme kind of corresponding roughly to a lot of the stuff in the first Ferrix arc, then resistance, all the stuff on Aldani, and then the kind of prison panopticon stuff with the Narkina 5 arc. So let's start off with the first one. So talk about the way that Andor kind of deals with and presents fascism in Star Wars. So Andor is, of course, you know, I mean, in terms of the chronology of Star Wars, it is yet another story that is set in the dark times. As you talked about, particularly on the Obi-Wan Kenobi episode about how much I'm, I've loved Star Wars stories that are set in the dark times. This is my favorite era of Star Wars storytelling. We, of course, just got Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is also in that period we are about to get the second season of Bad Batch, which is kind of earlier on in that, in the kind of early days slash years of the Empire. And, you know, particularly at this point in Star Wars storytelling, you know, there is easily a question that can be raised about what's new, like what kind of new territory can you really mine in that when you have had an Obi-Wan Kenobi, a Bad Batch, a Rebels, a Fallen Order. There's so many different stories that kind of deal with this 19 years in between Sith and A New Hope. But I think Andor really does manage to give us some new facets and particularly kind of new types of characters that allowed us to explore it a different way. And the first kind of, I guess, set of characters or type of characters that we particularly see in that context when we are talking in the Ferrix arc is, of course, everything having to do with 
the the, the pre-more cops, the kind of corporate cops and the character of Cyril Karn, who we're interested to. Tell me about some of your sort of initial thoughts and kind of feelings about Cyril as a character. Oh my God, you, uh, somebody described him as what it would look like if you got a chihuahua wet. And that, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I think that stuck to me. I have chihuahuas, uh, chihuahua wiener dogs. But yeah, uh, he kind of looks like when you yell at my dog. Uh, just he's, he is the epitome of why people have such a problem with security forces like this, corporate or not. It's the idea um, of someone who seeks out power because they want to use it against other people for order. It's like um, you find out, um, I used to be a true crime podcaster, you find out that a lot of serial killers and people like that seek out positions with authority like that, that they've tried to be cops or security guards. Or I think I, I might have been BTK was a dog catcher because that's the, mm-hmm. the authoritarian position he could get. And it's that kind of someone who didn't make the cut for the prestigious version. Cyril probably, you know, didn't make the cut to be in the ISB as we see him. I, I definitely think he wants to be. Um, but he's taking his job as seriously as if he was. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's such an interesting, you know, psychology to to Cyril. I want to talk about that more. And uh, I mean, one of the other things that's interesting about this show is sort of connected to that is it, sort of the way that the Empire is represented and appears in the show. And also, I think crucially, in certain ways, doesn't appear in the show because, of course, the Empire is all over the show. You know, we spend a lot of time with the ISB, and you know, we'll talk about some of the ISB stuff. And, you know, you get little moments with TIE fighters and you do see some stormtroopers and death troopers and so on. So we have the different characters and the kind of imagery and such associated with the Empire. But there is a way in which it is kind of the Empire does sort of occupy a backseat, particularly in this first arc, where really I, I don't remember, oh, who, which characters. I don't know if it's Cyril or if I don't know if it's it's his like his buddy sergeant guy, or maybe even the um, the main inspector who refers to the Primor cops as the kind of spear of the empire. It's that phrase. I don't remember exactly, but it's something like that. Like we are seeing the frontline, frontline guys. We're seeing the kind of subcontractors of the empire, which I found was really interesting because it's, it's not a facet that we have generally tend to explore. When we have dealt with the empire, we tend to see people who are in the empire proper as officers, as stormtroopers, as whatever. And instead, we are seeing these people who are kind of being farmed out by the Empire to do its work in these kind of more remote places like a Ferrix. It's having enough of a presence to have a semblance of control without having to get your hands dirty. And the fact that it's just these ordinary people doing their ordinary jobs that are upholding this authoritarian fascism it's kind of uncomfortable to think about you know is what you do every day contributing for good or bad yeah exactly it's like um i talked about this in the context of the obi-wan kenobi episode and it kind of plugs into that it is a oh my god i am blanking on on the character's name but it is uh, the alien who is voiced by zach braff that guy um the mole man yeah, the mole man. I, I can't remember his name right now. No, I can't. Uh, Freck. Was it Freck? Something Freck. like that? Yes, yes. Freck. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Freck. 
where when, um, when we were t- uh, when I was talking about Freck in the context of the Obi Wan Kenobi episode, I sort of brought up the point of how he kind of represents the the part of the empire that is on the ground and it is like it, it is the frex that you kind of need in order for the empire to, to survive kind of on a day-to-day basis and to have the kind of reach that it has and that's ditto with something like a serial card or with just these these premore cops where it's like you've got there there's a spectrum of the empire that is the star destroyers and the death star and the stormtroopers and all of that but then there's the other end of the spectrum that is equally as important, which is, as you mentioned it, you know, as you put it really well, it's the ordinary people who are kind of going about their lives and then they're making these kind of decisions that have the effect of holding up this entire structure. And it's like, I'm sure there are people that, I mean, you know, the people that make, say, the screws for Star Destroyers that don't realize it. And then there are people like Cyril who want to use their jobs to uphold it. Yes. I think there's a moral difference in there. I mean, it, it yeah. happens and, you know, there's the thing from whatever show it was that talks about how many people died when Luke blew up the Death Star that are contractors. And it's <laughs> like, you know, that's a, that's, that's a thing too. And you're contributing to, you know, this fascism, but then there's the people who willfully take delight in it. Like Freck did. And Freck is literally every time I see people wearing a certain type of red hat, as a queer woman when it's the same feeling that Obi-Wan had when he saw that empire symbol, the, Mm -hmm. this person is not a safe person. This person is somebody who is, thinks this is great. Uh, yeah. Freck, Freck messed me up in, in Obi-Wan. And there are people like that in Andor too. The people who are like, you know, there's that, that joke in history about, you know, at least Mussolini might make the trains run on time. Mm -hmm. People who don't care because they're not the ones being directly oppressed. Like they're feeling, you know, the empire might a little bit or whatever, but Oh no, it's not really here. It's not a big deal. It's fine. I don't care that they're doing this. They make everything so nice. And it's Andor had a lot of really uncomfy realizations like that. Yes. Yeah. It's very much in so many ways through the story that it tells and through the characters that we meet it is a story that is speaking to our times to a degree that, I mean, all Star Wars in all periods has to one degree or another spoken to the times in which the, the media has come out, whether it's the original trilogy speaking to things in the 70s and then the prequels in the early 2000s and so on. But I think Andor in particular has a really strong resonance and salience with events that are happening now and that have happened in the kind of immediate past. There was that idea that people were wondering if Rogue One was in response to the election of Donald Trump, which, I mean, I don't know how fast they think movies get made because it came out literally six weeks after the election. I want these people's optimism. I swear I do. (laughs) But it's the same with Andor, which we saw, you know, it is a reflection on our world, but this slow fascist, authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, creep that we are seeing in our world is not one person. It's a whole system. And that's what Andor is telling us. So, you know, Rogue One may have been in response to the events around. It wasn't a direct response to anything, but it's the response to what people see. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, I think that what you said there exactly gets to something about 
the way that the empire is present in this show, which is that on the one hand, as I mentioned before, it is present in the kind of physical form and at least some of the characters that we see in some of the familiar ships and all that stuff. But even more so, it is present as this kind of idea, as this thing that overlays everything that's happening. And you kind of see that in a character like a Cyril, who is not formally part of the Empire. You know, he's not an officer, he's not a stormtrooper, he's not anything like that. But he, as you mentioned, he is buying into the ideology and he is working to serve the interests of the Empire and he kind of envisions himself in as the kind of hero of the story. And that's what makes him such an interesting character in terms of having this kind of one foot in and one foot out that like he's on, he's manifestly on the outside from a kind of um, what's the phrase I'm looking for, like from like a positional perspective in that he's not, you know, hired by working for the empire formally in a kind of direct way. But then he's got this in in terms of he is this kind of subcontractor for the empire, but then even more so that he has bought in wholesale to the empire as this kind of aspiration, this thing that he wants to be. Yeah. And like the idea, you know, people talk about the fact that, you know, everybody thinks they're the main character of their story. Uh, Cyril really thinks that he is the main character that's going to bring down the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced of that. And you're like, you are such a tiny hog in this machine but in his mind, it's that that's going to bring down the empire or bring yes. down the, the rebellion, excuse me, which I mean, it can work, I guess. But he is so convinced that he is the main character and the hero. It's almost comical when he eats his sad cereal. Yes, exactly. And then actually that you bring that up, the, the sad cereal, I think, brings, you know, is a, is a good way to kind of transition to talking about the other kind of element to him, which is the way that the show kind of explores where that impulse comes from. Because when we meet him, of course, at the very beginning, in all the Ferrick stuff, we, we see the way that he is kind of super dedicated to his job and trying to track down Cassian. And he's done all of the little modifications to his uniform and how he's this kind of good company stooge. And then when you know it all goes to shit and he he leaves in disgrace and he has to go back home to Coruscant we start to see the kind of home life and the sort of particularly the dy- the kind of in-home dynamics that produced him and i think what's done so well with Cyril when we get to see him on Coruscant and we spend all that time with him and Edie his mother is that you know, when it comes to whether you're talking about, you know, a fictional bad, like a, like a fictional bad guy or even a w- real world bad guy, there is, th- there's a thin line, but there's also an important line between, on the one hand, excusing and justifying the bad actions that someone does, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, contextualizing the person's behavior and actions. And I think the show is on the one hand, smart enough to recognize, to know that, that, that there's a difference and to recognize that line, and then also smart enough to do the latter and not the former. So we see all the stuff with his mother in the home life, not to excuse what he does. We're not being given to say, you should feel 
sympathy for him because X, Y, and Z. Instead of saying, this is the kind of home life, this is the kind of parental figure that produces the certain person who does this. I almost, because I feel like this show gives us, not where they want you to sympathize so much yeah. with some of the empire, but they want you to, I guess, understand that there's the same situations in all of us. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, you see these people do terrible things, but they might be the same as you. You could do those if you made different choices. Like, um, switching to, to Deidre for a second, like every yeah. woman I know who watched that show, you know, as much as you know, she's being a terrible, horrible fascist person when she stands up and demands that, you know, the men listen to her. Most of, I, I mean, every woman's been in that meeting where nobody will listen to you and they're just waiting for somebody to say the same thing in a deeper voice. Right. But then you realize that what she's girl bossing for is terrible. Mm -hmm. And it just, it makes you kind of think about, oh God, you know, somebody who I'm thinking is, you know, a lot like me, could I do something like that? Am I doing things like that? That kind of idea. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I mean, you know, now that you brought her up, we can kind of talk more about Deidre and her story because she is, you know, she she is also, even though she's more, again, part of the kind of chronologically in the story a little bit later, we can still talk about it because I think she is relevant to the discussion about how Andor presents and deals with fascism. Like, she is an interesting character precisely in the way that you say that the way that we are set up to introduce her and all of the ISB kind of in-office drama is that we are set up in this way and the story is set up in this way for you at least in the kind of first part of the story to root for her because we see in these like we're we're given these insight about oh she sort of understands just what a threat these rebels are but all of these other men around her they're not really getting it so she's gonna as you exactly what as you're saying she's fighting to get her voice heard and trying to convince everybody else that the threat that she's seeing is also the one that they should be seeing and understanding and that they should be seeing things at the way that she's seeing. And so you're set up for a lot of that early part when she's doing the digging in and she's kind of trying to put all the pieces together of all the stolen parts that you're sort of there rooting for her to be the one who emerges victorious, like particularly in the kind of, you know, the, the Deidre versus Blevin kind of back and forth. But then of course the story does eventually do the shift as a way to almost kind of yank you out of that and remind you, oh no, like everything that she is doing is in service of this very terrible system. Yeah, she's um she's a really interesting character because there is that empathy. I mean, I guess it's because people have loved Darth Vader and Anakin for so many years. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm finding it funny now that people are like, oh my God, why do people like Deidre? I'm like, this this fandom has been, you know, excusing a lot of bad behavior from a lot of people. Right. Right. But, you know, it's just, it's such an interesting perspective because, no, I don't want the men talking down to her, but I also don't want her to do literal fascism. Right, right. And also, I just want to know how she keeps her bun so, so nice. <laughs> like, literally, I need, I need whatever hair care product she uses. Exactly. <laughs> yes. 
it, it is really kind of interesting the way that she is used in the story and as i mentioned the, the way that you kind of follow the story through her eyes for such a long part of it and then yeah you get that kind of the the the, the switch flip and it reminds you kind of what side all of these different characters are on but you know i mean as as we're talking you know as we're talking about the empire and all these other characters who are sort of connected to the sort of fascist regime of the empire like another important part of this this conversation we have to talk about and in some ways this can kind of start connecting us to some of the things about the nature of resistance in andor is to talk about the world of Ferrix itself. Because, of course, in that first arc, we spent a lot of time in Ferrix and the, the story after taking us to a lot of different places and through a lot of different plot lines ultimately ends on Ferrix too. And I think Ferrix as both a place where certain particular things happen and also as an environment is also a really kind of compelling place. Because there's only really, like, if you think about Star Wars and you think about all the different locations that we go to in Star Wars, there's only a really a handful where we really spend a lot of time in one place to really kind of flesh out the people and the culture and the sort of lived environment. Uh-huh. Like, for example, you know, between animated and live action Star Wars, we've gotten a lot of that in Mandalore. And we got, we've learned a lot about Mandalorian culture and all the different factions of Mandalorians. In Rebels, we spend a lot of time in Lothal, and we learn about like all the different people there and all the different networks and who's friends with who there. And then with Ferex, we spend so much time there. And like, you know, one of the knocks on the first arc of Andor, that Ferex arc is like, oh, the show starts too slow. But I think the flip side of it and why I like that Ferex arc is you spend so much time marinating in that environment. You really understand what the people are like and what their day-to-day lives are like. Yeah, it, it's really cool to see all that, especially with it being combined with other flashbacks and like Cyril. It's really, you spend a lot of time on Ferrix and you spend a lot of time in that, I guess, corner of the galaxy, the outlying worlds that, you know, the Empire isn't super concentrated on, I guess. They're kind of the contractors and stuff like that. I mean, kind of the same as we see in some of Rebels, where the outlying worlds are are left alone until they're not. Yes. But yeah, I really enjoyed getting to see the world of Ferrix and meeting the people and all of these characters that I don't know if they count as the Glup Chittos because you get to see them more, but I would die <laughs> for a lot of them. Oh, they're, they're definitely Glup Chittos on Ferrix, for oh, sure. God. The, the time uh, grappler? Hell oh yeah. God, I love him. I, I want to be him. I want his job. Can I please just bang a, a bell all day? Yes. I, I, I'm going to end up like living in the bell tower like the Hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> on Ferrix. Just come on, guys. Time to do a rebellion. Let's go. He sort of is the Ferrix in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, isn't I'm he? I'm just like, before we talk too much about resistance, I should I should tell people I have a rebel starboard with the resistance line through it on my left arm. So this is clearly something we're going to talk about for a yeah. while. <laughs> the woman with revolutionary tattoos. But exactly. yeah, no, I, I love the time grappler and how different, like the, the I'm going to theater nerd here for a minute. Mm-hmm. Stick with me. The sound design on yes. Ferrix of 
the everybody communicating and freaking out the empire by just sound the just and we'll talk about this later as we go towards the end but the music as the part of the funeral procession mm-hmm. um the time grappler and all of the bell what the you know what i mean the bell and just all of this stuff as such a different you know it's a world that looks not too different than you know the rest of star wars it's not you know there's nothing super crazy unique about it in that terms but the sound is what makes a difference and that just my little technical theater television nerdy heart loves it but that's how it sets itself apart is the sound yes yeah you're absolutely right i mean that that comes as you mentioned that comes into play both at the beginning and the end of the show where at the end of the ferrix arc when all the when all the premore cops are there to arrest Cassian, you have them ringing all the bells and you have that kind of traveling through the town and you have that whole thing with Marva where you, she has the, that's what a reckoning sounds like. It's unnerving, isn't it? And then she has the whole thing like when it goes quiet, that's when you're supposed to get really afraid. I love and, Marva so much. Yeah. I don't agree with all of her decisions, but I love her. So I love everyone in this show including the problematic people, it's fine. Um, But no, I I love her. I was excited when I saw Fiona Shaw was going to be in it because, I mean, I hated her for, not hated her, but, you know, she played a character you absolutely hated in the series about the boy wizard written by a turf that we won't name. Um, But yeah, because so we saw her in that. And then, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just, she, she did a phenomenal job in this show. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you really get from everything that happens on Ferrix, and I think this is a big part of what Andor deals with and is particularly part of the way that resistance is presented in Andor. I mean, we're, we're kind of moving into the resistance topic, but mm-hmm. I mean, there, of course, there'll be more things to say about fascism. And, I, you know, we will kind of, it all kind of jumbles together in this show. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things... That I think the show does really well. And again, one of the reasons why I like how much time it spends just with the kind of day-to-day Ferrix, we kind of watch Cassian go through and, you know, stop in Bix's shop and, you know, interacting with all the different people and we see all the regular people, is we get to see how much the resistance that the people of Ferrix do engage in, whether it's at the beginning against the Primor folks and then at the end against the Empire, how that is inextricably connected to the nature of the way that they live their lives mm-hmm. that that the for example the bells that they ring that those are on the one hand a means of communication but also it is this way to kind of rally people and send a message and then you can use that for you know for for resistance ends for revolutionary ends yeah or even the way that at the end of the, you know, if you fast forward to the end of the show, the way that rituals like the funeral that Marva gets, the way that that can ultimately be retooled and refashioned to revolutionary ends. Yeah. I love this show so much. I really do. <laughs> I just love this show. There's so much to talk about. And yeah, I love that. Um, I'm sure I'm going to bring it up multiple times in this recording. Uh, my favorite musical is Les Mis. So that idea of the the beat of the revolution going into it, it kind of reminds, you know, some of the Psalms have that 
to them in Les Mis. The, the beat of the drum is comes from somewhere from an army person and it turns into a song of revolution. And a lot of this show gave me those same vibes. Yeah, exactly. Because what you see in Andor is you have on the one hand our characters who you might want to call, let's say, professional revolutionaries who show up on the show, whether that's a Luthan Rail, whether it's Saw Gerrera when he shows up. These folks who are kind of in it full time, more or less. I mean, Luthan also runs a shop. But, you know, these people who are steeped in it and are building these networks and have all these connections and so on. And even some of the Aldani folks as well, or, you know, you could sort of call as professional rebels or professional revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. But then so much of like, particularly, again, the events on Ferrix is it's just ordinary people who kind of take up these causes, and engage in this much more sort of everyday type of resistance that isn't this kind of big professionally organized movement thing. I mean, even as something as simple, I said this was going to be a Brasso appreciation podcast, and it is, <laughs> of the fact that, yes, I will lie to the Empire for you, Cassian, again. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, as much as that is the fact that the people on Ferrix would unite with each other long before the empire like they unite with the empire you know they're not they're they're they keep secrets but there's not this whole idea that it's going to be one of your neighbors that turns you in yeah until tim decides until to tim oh, tim the only okay so the only character in the show i did not no he's a fine character i'm sure he's fine no he made a very bad choice and he paid for that choice yeah, I mean, you were mentioning earlier at the start when you're talking about, I think when we were talking about Cyril, you were mentioning about, you know, ordinary people making these decisions and how might that be feeding mm -hmm. into some larger system. And just immediately my brain went to dim because he's just this guy and he's in this particular kind of, you know, dynamic triangle thing with Bix and with Cassian and he you know he he rants out cassian and his ostensible motivations you can sort of under you know to some level you can kind of understand if oh he's trying to protect bix and he he's doing what he thinks is the right thing but then it has this whole domino falling cascading set of consequences and he ends up getting shot for it so yeah. but yeah so you know it's you get the idea he's like you know i'm going to protect bix and also have bix to myself and then i'm like really though are you are you yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it goes to that sort of th that unintended consequences of it all. He and broke the kind of unofficial Ferrix code. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And you know, when, when we talk about, again, the, the, the people of Ferrix and we talk about the way that they resist, you know, you just mentioned that thing about Brasso and about him, you know, lying for Cassian and kind of lying to the Empire and the authorities again. So you, you get that notion that he's done this multiple times. And, you know, when you look at, let's say, histories or like when people talk about different types of, let's say, resistance slash revolutionary mo movements that have happened in the real world, whether you talk about, let's say, a women's rights movement, civil rights, uh, labor movement, and so on. And when people sort of write about participation in those movements and resistance, like one of the things that I get emphasized is like the spectrum of you have on the one hand, the kind of organized activity. So you have the marches, 
the protest petitions, etc. You have all of that stuff where you have groups and you have people being brought together and all of these activities that are being coordinated and there's a very clear kind of objective to go to. Uh-huh. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the more kind of everyday quotidian kind of type of resistance where it's like, oh, it's someone on their shift and they're just like, they're working a little bit slower than they should be. Or they might throw a wrench into the machine and it breaks down and they, you know, the workers lose like half a day of productivity. Like, and the emphasis being like, that's also a form of resistance. It's not organized in the same sort of way. It's not as, you know, front facing or it's not going to be as public, but it's still this type of attempt to break, change some sort of system. You know, it's the um, things now, I'm going to keep relating this to the real world, so if I get too political, stop me. Um, But, like, with um, people are talking, you know, there's starting to be laws where, oh, if you're a therapist and a kid mentions that, you know, they're not secure in their gender identity and they're exploring it, you have to report them. And it's like, you know, therapists are basically going, you know, I just won't. And it's, no, they're not doing anything crazy. They're not, you know, shutting down anything over the laws. They're just like, hmm, I don't think I heard that. And they won't. You know, yeah, those it, little, little things. Or, you know, every person who is like, um, when, you know, just you, you see something, like just shop employees that'll see somebody, you know, taking diapers. And they're just like, hmm, did I see that? No, I didn't. That kind of, you know, little against the cog of everything else, you're just like, you know, I don't get paid enough to deal with that right now. Yeah, exactly. And it actually, it goes to one of the great lines that comes out of the show and it is in the Eldani arc. I can't remember who says it to Cassian, but it's like, there's a line about everybody has their own rebellion. I loved that line because there's this idea that to be an activist, you have to be a certain type of activist. Mm Mm-hmm. And you really don't. And I've been, you know, there's the difference between like people get mad when somebody is new, which if you're new to activism, listen, you know, more than you talk and do all that. But everybody has their breaking point. Yeah. That's when they finally get on board. And some people's is different than others, you know, and the case of um, I think they're talking about Gorn, who wasn't it that somebody he loved was targeted by the empire. Yeah. Cause he, w- he was married to, he fell in love with one of the Aldani natives. Oh yeah. That was it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the whole, you know, would the, uh, the rest of the rebels are probably like, Oh really? Until it affected you directly and somebody that you loved, you didn't care. And that's a valid criticism. Like mm-hmm. you didn't, you didn't care till it directly affected you, but at the same time, everybody has their own thing that brings them in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that all of these different characters have different motivations, different inroads into rebellion. And that, as you sort of mentioned in the context of activism, and then also applies here, is that what form that rebellion or resistance takes is different. So that lie, I think, operates on multiple different sort of levels in that way. Like you even have that great line about it is when Cassian comes back to Ferrix and he's trying to get Marva and B2 to leave. And then she talks about how she's planning on staying and how she got inspired by the events on Aldani and how she now wants to 
join the rebellion and she wants to stay there to resist the empire. She has, I should have found the line written it out because it's a really good line, but she talks about how like she's built this kind of fortress in her mind and how the empire can't get her in there. And it's like, that's another, everyone has their own rebellion. That's like rebellion is everything from being in the street, you know, building the, the pipe bomb that you then throw at the Imperials, you know, actual physical violence all the way to the, this kind of, solitary individualistic i'm just building up this kind of mental fortress and i'm going to maintain this resolve and i won't let them break me yeah it's just you know whatever you do to not become part of the machine that you hate at this point in star wars because we're you know we're in the dark times like you said but we're starting to be towards that rise of the rebellion Mm -hmm. like we see because we're about about a year before the start of Rebels, I think, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's similar. It's, it's maybe, I, th- I think the events of season one are maybe roughly simultaneous with season one of Rebels. Yeah, somewhere in there. I know Rebels is like, I don't know. Timeline's a little fuzzy. When they publish that Star Wars Timelines book, my entire personality is going to become it. <laughs> but yeah, that whole, you know, what if you what they want is to make you part of the system. If you're not part of the system, you're rebelling in your own way. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's just, that's just such a powerful idea. And we get all these different characters who we get to see rebelling in their own way. And I think that's really powerful because it gets to the idea that yes, like this rebellion is on the one hand, it's sort of diverse and broad in terms of the the spectrum of folks that it takes in. And like, there's the great Saw Gerrera line. I think when we first see him and Luthen is there, when he's rattling off all the different little rebel groups that are out there. Krieger's a separatist. My pays a neo-republican. The Gorman Front. The Partisan Alliance. Sectorist. Human cultist. Galaxy partitionist. Are you the Judean People's Front? Fuck off! What? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. And so, like, it kind of diverse and kind of expansive in that way, in the sense of you're getting all of these people who have all these different motivations and who are coming from different backgrounds, whether they were, you know, like a Gorn that they were originally in the Empire and experienced some dis- disillusionment, or they were directly victimized by the empire so i think it is it's Sinta, right whose family was killed by stormtroopers yes mm-hmm. or even like a vel who comes from this position of extreme privilege then going into being part of the uh, part of the the rebellion so it's it's expensive in that way but then also it is wide ranging in terms of the types of resistance that you get again all the way from your kind of traditional rebel activity which is you know, breaking into an imperial facility and and stealing the payroll and all that, all the way down to these more kind of everyday, more invisible forms of resistance. Yeah. Talking about Eldani and talking about the rebels there, you know, you talked about, you know, turning this podcast into a, into a, a Brasso appreciation episode. I want to also submit to turning this podcast into a Karis Nemec appreciation episode. Because oh, did I know we were going here? Yes, we were, we, we were, we were going to go to Comrade Nemec because he is just, it, he, he's such a compelling character in, in a, in a yet, bunch of different ways. So many bad takes on Twitter about him. 
so many bad. T- like I don't know. I don't know if it's because Andor is a different kind of Star Wars show, but the takes I have seen, I'm like, yeah, y'all don't get. I'm going to start a podcast, and it's called White People Misunderstanding Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> and I say this as a white people. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, you you would have plenty of content for that kind of an episode oh God, or show. So much, so much. One of the guys who participated in the insurrection on the Capitol has the same kind of tattoo as I do. I'm like, oh, honey, no. But anyway, yeah, Comrade uh, Nimick has, I loved how they used him in the finale. Yes. Oh, yeah. When when you get the little bits of the manifesto and just even first from just the kind of a, a cinematography level, the way that it's shot that you hear it and it's overlaid and then you get this kind of moving with all these different scenes. We see Luthan at one point. We see Cassian. And then the actual, in particular, the substance of the manifesto, where, especially that line where he's talking about how the empire and how these authoritarian systems, that they're actually very unnatural in certain ways. They take a lot of effort and energy to maintain and to preserve, and that freedom is this more kind of natural state. Like, that's unbelievable analysis, you know, for for a fictional you know, Star Wars show. Oh, yeah. Speaking of the different people we're seeing tied to Nemec, we didn't really mention much about Luthen. Like, we've kind of skirted around him, but he's the one who appears to be connecting a lot yes. of these rebels. I just want to know, because I, I need, I, I'm sure that they haven't been allowed to talk to Luthen to cover it up. I really needed a conversation between Luthen and me. Nemec when he's sitting there going through his manifesto and Luthen's like, oh my God, you're writing this down? Why? Yeah. No, you're totally right to talk about Luthen because Luthen is, again, he is also this kind of unique, unusual type of figure in the sense of, you know, he's not, of course, the first person, the first rebel that we've seen trying to, you know, walking this tightrope in terms of this living this double life. We have another character on this exact show who we will talk about who's doing that exact same thing. And, but yet, you know, he, we meet him at first and he is this very kind of mysterious figure who kind of just parachutes into Ferrix and he knows all this stuff about Cassian and about his background and, and then we I just, love Stellan Skarsgård. I just need to put it out there. He's fantastic in everything I see him in. Oh, yeah. Just a f- yeah, phenomenal actor and just amazing performance that he gives in this show. Oh, yeah. Really, um, the acting in this show is completely amazing. They really pulled out all the stops and got the greatest people, which is yes. something that I've really liked as Star Wars has gone into Disney's. They really have invested and gotten some really great actors. Yes, definitely. Yeah, th- that is something that in, in the broader scope, in terms of the conversation of the Disney era of Star Wars, I do not think gets enough talked about, which is, yes, just the sheer weight of talent that has been in there all the way through you know, the sequel trilogy movies, going into the animated shows, and then, yeah, even going into the live action TV, that it has just, it, it has been just great people and great talents who have been brought in. They got Forrest Whitaker in a movie and then on a TV show for a streaming service. Exactly. And also on an animated kids show. Like, yes, they did. I'm just like, 
you ever would like that's i i feel like it was either a tough sell or somebody's like hey forrest do you want to do star wars and he's like yeah of course i do yes it was either really tough or really easy there's no in between <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but yeah just the talent that Stellan Skarsgård brought um did you get to see when they re-released Rogue One into theaters with the Andor preview? No. I was um, about to fall out of my seat because I scooted right up to the front. And my sister's next to me being, you know, like siblings are going, um, you know, you can see it if you sit back, too. I'm like, shut up. Rebecca. But yeah, it's just the the scene they showed as the preview. Um, I think they put on a Disney Plus after a couple days. But it was um, the scene in the third episode between Luthen and Cassian in the, um, like the abandoned factory mm-hmm. and went through all that with it and that action escape. So yeah. that was kind of the, the cool thing is that we still don't know a lot about Luthen. Yeah, exactly. The, the show, we spend a lot of time with him, but we don't really totally understand his background or where or his hair you know, piece. Yeah. Or his hair piece. Yes. Because, you know, we get little hints of it where, you know, he gives that like the, the phenomenal monologue that he gives to Lonnie and he, he alludes to the 15 year equation that he's had. And, you know, we get the, you know, him handing Cassie and the little Kyber crystal necklace and saying, that's, that's valuable. Hold on to it. You get a sort of hint there. Oh, maybe that's some sort of, relic from a past life or something like that i don't know but if they decided to do a prequel series would i don't feel like every series needs a spinoff series but uh, i would watch a still in scars card star wars series yeah no i i totally would too because he is this he's he's such an interesting character in the sense of you know on the one hand, he, you know, you, you do talk about him sort of living this double life, you know, th- th- that great moment, I think it is in the, I think it probably would be in the, either the third or the fourth episode, I don't remember, I when he's fourth. going back, yeah, the fourth, when he's going back. I know the moment you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, when he is headed back to Coruscant, and he's on the ship, and we see him put the wig on, and then him kind of practicing the alter ego that he has me before i answer my work phone (laughs) it's very relatable yes anytime before you hop on a zoom call it's like everybody is is a luthan in that moment what was the important question i asked you this morning are we going to be on video do i have to get my zoom face on yes exactly or can i sit on my couch in my pajamas like i may or may not be doing yeah and then, you know, we, we see at so many different points the way that he takes this very kind of hard edge. Like we see to what extent, you know, just how committed he is to the rebellion where, you know, when he brings Cassian and Aldani and he has that very tense conversation with Val or even when he is, you know, when he's in his shop worrying, you know, the night before the Aldani raid is going to take place. And he's like, oh, what if it's, it just all falls apart right now? He's one of these characters where like, every time you see him on the show, and particularly even when he's, he's wearing the kind of shop owner persona, you always feel like he's just one step away from just exploding. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, also, yes, I've worked retail, but... <laughs> <laughs> But no, just like that idea that you, 
I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. Sorry. Um, sorry. Like you almost don't know which side of him is the real side. Yes. You get the yes. idea that the rebellion side of him is more him because we see him practicing the other persona, but how much of the rebellion is also a crafted persona mm-hmm. who's really under that layer. It's like yeah. Russian dolls of characters almost like he's puts on and takes off layers all the time. Like you almost see he's got his, his rebellion persona with Val and Cassie and then, but when he has that monologue, it's almost like another layers taken off. Yeah, exactly. And you even get, you know, t- to that point, which is really good about which is the real Luthan and to what extent even rebellion Luthan is this persona. You get a little bit of that in that first saw scene when he's there and Saw's like, I'm not sure I even know who you are. Like, who are you, Luthan? And he says, I'm a coward. And it's like, yeah, that moment and then the Lonnie moment are both uh, this, these inside of, oh, even this, even the rebellion Luthan is this kind of persona, this armor that he's wearing. And I mean, like, it's honestly, as somebody who does stuff in activism, it's something that a lot of people can relate to. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure, like, leader Val isn't real Val. There's a persona under Saw Guerrera. You know, the Jin Urso we see giving the speech in the um, one about a sharp stick and nothing left to lose can win the day. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's not the real her. I mean, yeah. yes, it is, but also, you know, everybody has. It's another thing that this show makes you think about, along with the idea of, you know, sometimes the things that make us relatable to fascist is this idea that, you know, even that everybody has these layers, what face are you putting to the world? Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you the Rachel that did the press tour for what choice is a different personality than the Rachel who's sitting on her couch talking about revolution. <laughs> Those are two yeah. different people. Yeah. But yeah, it's that yeah. idea of, you know, what, how much do we know these people? And you get the idea, like, even you see it with Cyril too. Like, um, Cyril, Cyril with his mom is not the same dude we saw who was, you know, insisting over his superior's head that we have to investigate this murder. You know, yes. even he has these sides. And Deidre, we don't almost see her let her hair down until the mob gets a, her, their hands on her. And you see the real person underneath that uniform for a second. Yeah, that, that's such a good point that with all these characters, uh, you know, across the spectrum in terms of, you know, their allegiances to the empire versus the rebellion is that, yeah, they are all presenting these particular fronts. Like I even think about, you know, you just brought up Cyril and the kind of bringing him back in a little bit, like the, the, you know, to, to cereal, cereal, as you, as you described him so well. No, I just want cereal. I'm going to have to go get cereal <laughs> after this. Yes. That moment when he is back in his mother's apartment and he's going for the interview at the Bureau of Standards or whatever it is, and she just starts dissecting him and talking about how he's changed the suit and all this. It's like, what are you trying? Like, who are you trying to be? Like, like, what are you trying to play at here and all that? It's like th- there's a little bit of a mirror to that with the like, who are you really, Luthen Rail? You know. Mm-hmm. And even though the, these characters have committed themselves to these different causes, the way that they are toggling among all these different personas and personalities and how they have to be different people in different contexts 
is yeah in all of them i mean you know i just mentioned how luthan is this character how you feel like he's just one step away from snapping cyril is another one that you, you see him a lot of times and it looks like he is one step away from just exploding every you time he's with his mom you think honestly, just like he's gonna flip the table yeah he's sorry uh he's probably one of the characters that honestly scares me the most mm-hmm. because he reflects so much of the people we do see snap in our culture mm-hmm. and honestly as we're talking about personas and being hidden the one character we haven't talked about yet that's where i was going you know where i was going next oh, good. Go ahead. <laughs> no go ahead do it uh mon mothma Yes. And the faces she puts on. And by God, the costume she puts on. I want this woman. Sorry, I'm going to be a, 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 a complete and total girl cliche for a moment. I want this woman's wardrobe mm. more than I want Padme's. Yes. Like she's just, she's like, hello, I am here to finance the rebellion and serve looks. And oh, by the way, I'm serving more looks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, this is Please, really good. Somebody give the costume designer, like, an award it's fantastic you know you, you're totally right and yeah i mean as we're having this conversation again about these characters who have to play act in all these different contexts like we have to of course talk about the mon mothma of it all because you know she is in even more so than a luthan rail is in this very very precarious situation you get the idea that luthan has some time he can let his guard down you know you don't mm-hmm. know if it's the real him or not but even like when he's around his assistant, whose name I cannot remember for the life of me, but she's a very good actress and very pretty. Um, but like you get the idea that Mon Mothma has to keep her mask on 24-7 because she's trying to hide from Luthen, you know, the financing problem she's having. She's hiding from other people exactly what she's financing and she's hiding it all from her husband who is Mm -hmm. a complete and total douche nozzle yes uh out of okay again other than tim the character in this show that i just (laughs) really like his face this actor is doing a phenomenal job so it's nothing against him but i just want to smack perrin in the face every time he's on screen absolutely yeah and yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It's so interesting that the, the kind of choice in the show where, you know, you do see Mon Mothma at work. We get those moments when she's in the Imperial set in a little bit. But the decision to focus so much of Mon Mothma's story on her home life and the way that she is trying to run this rebellion out of her home, but then is also doing this very difficult tiptoeing work of trying to figure out who to trust and trying to have to keep things from her husband. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, keep things from Luther and the consequences that that is having for her at a personal level, where on the one hand, it is, of course, causing all of this friction with, with parent, you know, you talked at the beginning about you know, when we were having some more of the the fascism conversation about, you know, different characters in Andor who are kind of, in some ways, either downplaying or sort of trying to live above or kind of turning a blind eye to the reality of the system in which you live. Like that, you know, pretty much, I think, is is that first scene or, you know, early scene with her and Perrin when they're planning the dinner party. And, you know, Mon Mothma is expressing 
outrage about the fact that he's inviting Sly Moore and all these people who have been obstructing her work in the Senate. And then he sort of just has this attitude of like, what is the line? Like, why must you make everything so sad and boring? I think that's the line. Mm-hmm. Where like, he basically gives the kind of the, the Star Wars version of why do you have to make everything so political? Oh, I'm sorry that existing in a world as a person who's not you, Perrin, is political. You know, it's the same thing. A lot of people like Perrin say he's the person who eh, the Empire's whatever. But, you know, God, it's so boring when we have to, you know, be against it and argue. And why can't we just have fun and have parties and. I don't know. He's a slime ball. Yes. I have a lot of feelings about Perrin. So just be prepared. Lots (laughs) lots of feelings. By all means, let it all out. So you see the way that Mon's own kind of political commitments and her commitments to the rebellion are causing this, this obvious tension with her, her husband who is someone who just simply wants to kind of enjoy the fruits of their privilege and not really kind of rock the boat in any sort of way. And then you're also seeing it the way that it is causing these problems with her daughter, who I think is, you know, when you know, when when you first get to see her, and again, I think it's maybe like episode four or whatever, I remember like there, there was so much, at least among Star Wars fans online, there was so much negative reaction to her as this kind of, you know, this kind of bratty child. And on the one hand, you, you know, you can kind of see, yeah, she is this kind of, you know, she, she's talking back to Mon and she's being very disparaging. But then I was, I was thinking about it, like to, to think about the situation in the world and to see things sort of through her eyes. It's like, here's this kid who is in between these two people who don't like each other (laughs) at all, really. And, you know, when it comes to her mom, she, of course, doesn't know what her mom is doing. She doesn't know that she's leading this rebellion and so on, and she's doing all these activities. But she is at least kind of intuiting the fact that, oh, my mom is kind of leading this double life, and she's not always, you know, the, you know, she's not always meaning what she's saying and saying what she's meaning and she is the conclusion that she's leading to you know incorrectly from our sort of view as star wars fans but you know it sort of makes sense from hers oh my mom is this fake person who's just out for herself i mean also when people are like yeah she's an annoying bratty kid have have you met teenagers (laughs) they as people always want to comment about how self-absorbed teenagers are and they're most of them are not maybe the younger ones are and some of them but that's like the time of your life that you're figuring out who you are and she's stuck between you know a mom that she doesn't think she can trust but who doesn't seem to have a ton of time for her which happens i mean it's like every day and i'm assuming the imperial senate also does not have parental leave but you know like looking into that but also She's coming of age in a time of rising fascism and instability. And, you know, people, because she's, what, 13 or so? Yeah. She's about the same age as a little, maybe a couple years younger, but about the same age as Luke and Ezra. Yeah. You know, the kids that are coming of age in this time, and we see it in our world, you're either going to be um, the the you know the new revolutionaries the very liberal people we kind of think of as the younger folks but there's also a trend 
and we see it in Lita of, you know, oh, we're going to get even more conservative than our parents. Yeah. yeah. Where the only thing Mon Mothma can get her to go to is the traditional Chandrillan like classes. And it's, yeah. it's just a different perspective that we're seeing because we usually are seeing the young people as revolutionaries and no, they can, they can also be part of the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah, it, it is a good example of the less often talked about, but that does exist. The other spectrum of, you know, young person, teenage rebellion is like the one that we're so kind of culturally used to. That's kind of the stereotype of the cliches like, Oh, the, the kid who rebels against their parents by like cutting their hair or they wear torn up jeans or whatever. But then there is the other end of the spectrum of the ones who are rebelling by going full blown ultra traditionalist, you know, evangelical all the way that way to the point where it's like with Lita and being part of this kind of Shandrillan cult or whatever is like, I think somebody makes the comment like even Perrin, who is this kind of conservative guy, even he's like, well, this is a little weird. So yeah, like, I think that that is an interesting facet to see that the way that she kind of is responding both, as you said, both to what is happening domestically with her parents and the relationship that she has, but then also stepping out more broadly, the way that she is reacting to this entire order that exists in the galaxy. And, and that you have the spectrum of response for all the way from revolutionary to reactionary. I feel like we're seeing the other side with Vel. Like, we don't yeah. know much about her family, but we get the idea that if she's related to Mon Mothma, she's probably rich and politically. I mean, they tell her she's a little rich girl a couple times. But this idea that her parents probably are not revolutionary. Mm hmm. And this is her rebellion is she grew up expecting to, you know, be married off at 16 or whatever. And parents still like, yeah, have you found a husband? And Vel's like <laughs> stares in gay. But that's oh. that's her her way is going one way. Lita is going the other. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And yeah, yeah, Vel is being in this kind of interesting position where, yeah, she is the revolutionary on the one hand, but she's coming from privilege. And, you know, you talk about yeah, the, the way that she is kind of relating to, to Mon Mothma and to Perrin by being in this place. But I think also interesting in terms of how, how that affects her relationship with Sintam, because you see some of that kind of that sort of tension coming up there in terms of Vel's background. Because, you know, you mentioned the like the little rich girl line or something that originally comes from Sintam, where, you know, you talked earlier about people who are kind of new to activism or, or you know, something like that and the dynamics that, that, that they have with people who have, let's say, you know, been in the trenches, as it were. Like, I think you get a little bit of that in terms of the interactions of Val and Sinta, where Val is on the one hand, yes, she's a revolutionary and she's you know, committed to this resistance against the empire, but she still kind of has one foot in terms of, oh, I do want, you know, I, I want some of the trappings of ordinary life. I want to have a relationship with this woman. And then Sinta's the one who's like, it's all, I'm giving 110% to this. Honestly, the characters who don't have those layers and those veils that we're talking about mm -hmm. are Nimic and Sinta. Honestly, yes. that I see. Maybe Bix. I feel like we kind of, Bix is, is what, what you see is what you get. She's a very strong woman, but she's not particularly on any of the sides, except for she's not a real big fan of the Empire. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's not as 
putting on a persona for anyone. But those three, Vel is like, you see her going in and out of society to, you know, being a, a revolutionary dressed like a sheep herder. Yes. I remember someone when when she first made her appearance in the first Eldani episode on Twitter referring to her as Highland Ray. <laughs> I just love that. It's exactly right. Look, she's doing a great job and I love her. Yes. But I would totally cosplay her if I thought I could make that kind of blonde wig look anything, <laughs> anything like good on my very, very dark hair. But yeah, just that idea of that resistance of you know, where do all these people come from? We don't know where Nimic comes from. I would love mm-hmm. to know more about his background yes. because there's something very university student almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Kind of makes you think, you know, maybe did he try and study somewhere? Did he, you know, what's what's up with him? I want to know more about all these people. Please give me and or tie-in books. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I need to go into debt at the Barnes & Noble again. Will, will, that's okay. Million dollar idea, Barnes and Noble credit cards. I think they oh might have God. them. Anyway. Oh, and, you know, with Mon, what of course you start to see over the course of the show is on the one hand, the ways that she is living in this very, very dangerous environment. Like she has, you know, she knows, for example, that her driver is probably spying on her. She's aware of that. The whole thing where she's at the parties with Tay and the way that she kind of is sort of slowly, gently kind of poking and prodding him to see where his allegiances are and then is slowly sort of revealing the truth of what she is actually doing without even really saying it in so many words, but is still remaining, you know, very much still kind of speaking in code even to him. And... So you're seeing this kind of this tightrope that she has to walk at all times. But then you also see over the course of the show, the way that her trying to manage all these personas is slowly starting to kind of deteriorate and how it's breaking her. And you get the kind of pushing point ultimately is once she, you know, is dealing with the Shandrillan banker and she's trying to get the money. And then he's like, yeah, I'll do it. But I have this son who would like to meet your daughter. And so now it's in the situation where she's now having to use her own family as collateral for this rebellion. And it's almost weird because, I mean, that was going to bother the hell out of me because, you know, child marriage is creepy as hell. And, you know, even knowing that they, you know, are just going to meet and possibly be betrothed, they're probably not getting married now. God, I hope. Um, But the fact that her daughter would love it. Yeah. And it almost makes it not worse because she's, you know, going with her daughter's wishes or whatever, but she's still using her as a pawn and her daughter's 13. Or is she so far in a corner that, you know, she has to get out because otherwise it'll affect her daughter too. Yeah, exactly. As you say, there are, there are so many, particularly to that kind of plot line, of the story. There's so many different kind of dimensions to it or faster. There is the aspect to it where, as you said, exactly, because Lita is part of this kind of 
ultra orthodox, you know, Shendrillon cult, you get the sense of, oh, this arranged marriage may not be particularly a forced marriage. She may, you know, well be much more enthusiastic. She might be the most enthusiastic person for all we know about doing this. We, of course, don't know yet because we only get that one shot of them meeting. So we, don't, we haven't yet seen how Lita actually feels about it. Mm-hmm. So you've got that you've got that dimension to it coming into play. But then you also have the sort of dimension of like where, you know, we, we were talking about the way that that Lita is kind of perceiving her mother as this person who was kind of always out for herself and her own tr- interests. And then you like you look at this happening. It's like, oh, like, is this in some kind of perverse way, almost validating Lita's own feelings about her mother? You know, the, the fact that she's willing to use her, daughter, you know, like it's, it's all this kind of like stuff that's happening here. Yeah, there's a lot of layers, and I really, really hope. I mean, obviously they have to, but they're, you know, I really want that explored more in season two, because I yes. feel like when we see Mon Mothma, her family's not with her, and it's like, yeah. you know, what all did she sacrifice for the rebellion? Yeah, exactly. And, and you I mean, wonder because people will criticize her not having the strong arm tactics of, say, Saw Gerrera. And people like that, that's, you know, oh, when you fought the Empire, you know, when you lose to the Empire, um, no, you did it by the rules. You know, did she bargain too much and lose everything that makes her more cautious? Yes. Yeah. You know, you just brought that thing about the fact that when we see Mothma again, you know, chronologically in Rebels, she's alone. And that question of like, what did she give up and all of that? You know, that gets to when we when we're talking about these characters, you know, the the great Luthan speech, that is the catalyst of that when Lonnie's like, Well, I'm giving up all these things. What have you given up for it? And then he goes through the of the ways that I don't have the lines here and like I couldn't do it justice, but the way that he talks about how his commitment to the cause has robbed him in, in certain ways. I mean, the summary of it, like it's robbed him of his humanity in so many ways. Like it's prevented him from living a kind of what he would see as a sort of normal, decent, authentic life, and that he has had to be kind of in the mud as, you know, he has the line about, I'm condemned to use the tools of the oppressors or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of paralleling with Oman's own journey where like, yeah, like she is committing herself to doing these things to the, to the cause, but like, what is she giving up at a personal level? And what does she have to do? And, you know, who does she have to get in bed with in terms of like the, the, the shady bankers and all that stuff. Yeah. And it makes you, you know, it also, the speech that Luthen gives could almost be about Saw Guerrera too. Yes. What has Saw done for the rebellion? You know, he's not living at this point because you see the, because this is right after he would have dumped Jin for the mm-hmm. record. And you kind of already see that paranoia creeping up in him. He's not quite the person we see in Rogue One, but one of the most interesting things I think is the characters in the show that we do see in Rogue One, we start to see how they end up there. Yes. And it's fascinating and in some ways sad because we're seeing it with Cassian where he's going from, you know, it's kind of, honestly, he's kind of a dick in the first episode. Yes. He's kind of being a jerk and doesn't care and worrying his mom and worrying his droid who is literally the sweetest thing on the planet. And we're mm. seeing him being molded into what we see in Rogue One. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're totally right. That 
him going on this in a lot of ways the kind of quintessential star wars hero's journey of here's this guy who's kind of just out for himself and he has his own agenda and you know you get that with the aldani thing which is the, the only reason he gets involved is because luthan is promising him a large payment but then that ultimately being the kind of turning point there because you know you get that conversation with skeen who we haven't talked about here where after the Aldani mission, it's Skeen who's like, oh, I'm just, you know, you and I, we can just split the take, we can get out of here and, you know, spend all this money on ourselves and, you know, leave behind the cause and the, and the rebellion. And then him just immediately instinctively going to shooting him, like that representing this kind of turning point where Cassian starts shifting the way that he's thinking about his priorities, that like, that he is seeing in Skeen in that moment what he once was in terms of this person who didn't care and was just out for himself. And after that, he starts making the decisions and taking the steps to becoming the rebel leader that we see by the time we get to Rogue One. Yeah. And even though he sees it and then he tries to run from it again and he sort of sees that it doesn't matter. Like he completely said, you know, hey, I'm out. I'm gone, you know, I'm not going to be a revolutionary. I'm going to just go hang out and be a tourist. And then that's when he ends up in prison. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. the Empire doesn't give a shit whether he's a tourist or whether he's a revolutionary. He's just, you know, he's in the way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that gets back to the, you know, to the beginning of the episode when we were talking about the nature of fascism, which is like, there's no outrunning this. That is what Cassian tries to do after the Aldani mission is, oh, let's go to this paradise. Let's just hang out here and everything will be fine. And let's then the have more, a shirtless I, scene just to make, <laughs> you know, somebody's blood pressure rise at six in the morning. Yes, exactly. And the moral being there, I mean, it's a, it's a moral throughout so much of Star Wars storytelling that being like, you can't run away from this. No. It is going to catch up to you. I mean, we see that with Jin in Rebel Rising and Rogue One. Yeah. You know, she, she tries to run from it and it finds you. And yeah, and just huh, when the, the K, what is it, KX series droids yes. started coming up, I thought we were getting another story for a second there. I was like, oh, good. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Man, that was really, that, that was just a really good, just, bait and switch fake on you that you think like oh my god that's the joint it's like oh no it no, hurt no. my heart very badly yep i guess the one section we haven't talked about really yet is the whole prison arc that is where we are you you are it's, it's like it's like one mind you're seeing where i'm going here either that or you sent me the outline <laughs> yes. to be fair the outline was like a facebook message so we're, yes. we're you know we're doing but yeah, no, the prison arc was rough. I enjoyed it. It said some really great things. It was a rough, it was rough to watch. Yeah, it really was. Cause it's like, it is, I, I talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Andor on, on, on the Clashing Sabres episode. Everything about, I mean, first of all, the Narkeena 5 stuff is my favorite stuff from this first season. I really love it. As difficult as it is to watch, and you're absolutely right about that. Like the Narkeena 5 as a kind of setting it is the other end of the spectrum of dystopian science fiction because you have the one end of the spectrum that is you know, desolation, destroyed cities, your zombie apocalypse, whatever. And then you have this end, which is it's clean, it's sterile, 
it's all ordered and uniform, but it is its own kind of terrifying. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah, just the way that this place is structured and the routine. Like, I remember that first episode when you're in our, in our Kino 5, like, what is like the prison PA voice just freaking me out every time it came oh, on, yeah. the kind of deep, sonorous voice. And I love how you like you subsequently find out during the prison break is like it's just some random prison guy like talking into some mic and it just like synths his voice. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. And yeah, like all the structure about being on program and all of that. And like, you know, some of the dark stuff about the prisoner who commits suicide. Yeah. Throws himself into the into the electrified floor. And mm-hmm. the 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 prisoner who you know the old guy who's almost out who gets euthanized when he you know when he falls down oh that was a rough yeah uh and that was the one i kind of ended up being randomly signed up to guest on a couple of pods about andor because i don't know if you've been on my twitter but maybe rogue one might be my brand um <laughs> maybe possible but yeah that was the episode where he died was one of them that I was guessing on a pod about. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, what's so, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things that I find just really compelling about Narkina five as a setting. Like one of them is, and it kind of actually ties back to our Mon Mothma conversation that we just had is I sort of tease at the beginning of this episode, but it's this idea of the panopticon and sort of for folks who aren't familiar with this. So the Panopticon was actually originally, it was a design for a kind of model prison structure that was proposed back in the, um, in the 18th century by a philosopher called Jeremy Bentham. And the idea of the Panopticon was it would be the structure where you would have a single tower, a guard tower in the middle, and then you would have these rings of prisons around the tower. And the conceit, the idea behind the, the Panopticon model was that the guards who were in the tower would be able to look into any cell that was on the rings. But the cells, the way that they are set up is the prisoners wouldn't be able to look back up into the guard tower to see if the guard was looking at them. And so the, the idea of the way this was, this was built as a kind of more efficient model prison system is the idea was that the prisoners not knowing whether or not they were being watched would at all times behave as if they were under surveillance and that they would regulate their own behavior accordingly because they would have no way of actually knowing whether there was a guard looking in on them at any given time. And there's a famous French philosopher in the 20th century, Michel Foucault, who sort of takes that idea and develops this idea of what he calls panopticism. And his his sort of notion with panopticism is that this model of the prison actually becomes this kind of template for all sorts of different social institutions. So his idea is that in all these different places that we go, whether it is not just a literal prison, but also workplaces, schools, hospitals, and so on, that all of these institutions are structured in such a way that they condition us to feel like we're always being watched. And so then we behave in that way and we kind of self-regulate. Yeah. Um, I was looking into this a little bit when people started um, talking about it in when the episodes came out and Mm -hmm. I had never heard of Panopticon. Um, But when I'm looking at that, I realized that that is literally one of the things that drives my anxiety the highest. 
mm-hmm. is I don't like feeling like I'm being watched. Yes. So it's just a really creepy concept to me. And this idea that that's what you see it more in the prison, but you get the idea that, I mean, that the empire does have eyes in a lot of places. And, you know, even when you think that they're not watching you, like on Ferrix, when, you know, they're like the whole, we have each other and we Mm -hmm. didn't care because, you know, nobody was going to betray them to the empire till friggin' Tim. (laughs) This is now a Tim hate podcast. Yes. But yeah, that idea of always being watched and you have absolutely no space, like with the little pods and they don't like need bars. They just make it where you can't walk. And I'm like, I don't, I know they meant to make it unsettling, but I'm not sure if they realize how unsettling they have made me, how they have made it for me. Like that's just like literally the idea of being trapped where everybody can see you. Uh, No. No, don't like it at all. I do not like it. But it does lend a thing because we were thinking, like when they first, in one of the first episodes, they mentioned that Cassian had been in prison and in the army and everything like that. You know, how much of his backstory is all true and how much is false is another thing. But like the whole, you know, he had been picked up for stuff. But then we have that line in Rogue One where he says that this is a first for him. Mm Mm-hmm. And some people are like, oh, my God, but he's been in prison. And I'm like, it's a little bit of a different situation. But even when he says it's a first for him, think of the prison he ends up in at Saw's versus the one he ends up there. Yes. You know, it would be a first for him. Also because he's being imprisoned by his side. Yes. Sorry, um, I'm single-handedly combating bad and or takes. But yeah, just that idea of always watching the, um, that's what the empire wants you to think because yeah, like they, you said people self-regulate. It's the same idea as like any book you've ever read that takes place during the Holocaust. People would like regulate themselves because I don't remember where I heard it, so I can't source it, but like the number of actual people in the SS to check compliance of things was fairly low. They relied on the fear of it and they relied on the fact that people either would snitch on their neighbors or people thought their neighbors would snitch. Like that idea of, you know, we don't have to put the resources into controlling people if we can just make them control themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the scene in Rogue One when they're all imprisoned by Saw's partisans because... I was going to bring up there the, the cheered Imway line where he says there's more than one type of prison. And I think that is something that Andor directly calls back to in a lot of ways, where you see, on the one hand, Cassian in the literal prison on Arkina 5. But then on the flip side, you know, to go back to the conversation we just had about Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma being in her own kind of prison. Oh, she's the one, honestly, like, is sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. The idea, if you're thinking of the Panopticon as the prison where you're always being watched in the liter, I, I know I'm missing a lot of philosophy and theory here, but bear with me. She's the one who's in the worst one, mm-hmm. worse than Cassian, and he's in a literal prison with electric floors. But she literally never has anywhere that someone's eyeballs are not on her. Yeah. Like th- that great little moment where I think it was maybe she was having a conversation with with Tay possibly, 
and you get the shot the kind of faraway shot where it's it's her back and she's looking for it and her head just falls and it's like that says everything about her situation that she's trapped in this you know this kind of gilded prison of her own home and there's the point i think it's one of the ones where she's talking uh, doesn't she give instructions like laugh as if we've thought of something amusing? Yes, yes. And it's just that idea of we're having a completely different conversation, but I need you to act like this is completely normal. They're watching mm-hmm. us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Th- That gets to the, the the kind of panopticon of it all, like the way that this prison structure is existing in all of these different spaces. And, you know, you have that, you, you know, when you go back to Narkina 5, the, the way that it is structured for all the prisoners to to regulate themselves. Like you have that great conversation that happens between Kino and Cassian back when they're in the, you know, in the cells in their barracks. And, you know, Cassian is trying to ask him all these questions about the prison and so on. And Kino's like, you know, leave it alone. Like, like don't talk about it. And then Cassian's like, you think they're listening? No one's listening. But you, so you see in that moment the way that, a prisoner like Kino has been conditioned to think they're always listening. And it's, it's Cassian coming there saying, like, no, no one's, li- there's, there's nothing around. They don't care about us. No one's listening. And then what does he say at the end of Rogue One? Do you think yeah. anybody's listening? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm going to go cry in the corner for a little <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's, that was me with a lot of Andor. I'm like, I'm just going to go cry now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just that idea of, Nobody's listening, but when he finally made the big, the, I guess we'll call it the, a big enough fuss, you know, stealing plans and blowing up a plan, you know, it's fine. He's never done anything wrong ever. But, you know, people are waking up and people are listening. But yeah, and can we get, again, with the actors, some appreciation for Andy Circus and the. Oh, so good. I really hope he gets, if not an award, then some, some recognition. Just because, yeah. I mean, we always see him. He's so good. And that's why they use him for so many motion captures is because he's so expressive. Because that's hard, hard work. But to see him doing such a great job in a role like this, it was just phenomenal. And that gut punch. And he says he can't swim. Oh, oh it hurt. It really did. <laughs> My sister... um, she was not as big of a fan of Andor as I was, even though she likes political dramas. She just doesn't apparently like them with her Star Wars. But she was, she still liked it well enough. And um, I asked her if she'd seen Andor, and she said not yet. And then a couple hours later, I just get a message that says, he can't swim. And I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> You're in the same same pit of despair as I am, dilly yeah. dilly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just... And Melshi. I was so mm-hmm. happy they added Mel. Yeah, so I just, all of the, the warm fuzzies for, you know, the five seconds before it was back to destroying me. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the other thing that I love about, you know, again, the environment of an Arkina 5 and what happens there, and it kind of connects to what we were just talking about with Kino Loy. He sort of factors into a lot of this. And also kind of connects back to our conversation about the Panopticon, about like the similarity of all these you know, different types of structures, like the prison is the factories, the school, etc. is how much of, and I think this was, you know, I think it was very much deliberate on Tony Gilroy's part. And he's talked about the way that he's been kind of 
you know, the, the real world influence that came into the writing and creation of Andor is like, when you see what happens in Arkina 5, it's like, you know, Arkina 5 is on the one hand, it is a prison, but it is also a factory. It is this place where they are making this stuff for the Empire. Oh, that post credit scene. I forgot about the post credit scene. I was running late because I didn't want to, you know, wake up and watch Andor. Um, the last episode of Andor aired the day we got Portillo's, honestly. Um, so yeah, yeah um, please pour one out for the people who had to try and talk to me in person that day. It was, it was an experience. But I had been doing all of these, like I was in rehearsal for like six hours every night. And so I was exhausted and running late. So I'd watched all of it. And then I just didn't catch the like last bit, which I watched, you know, on my coffee break at work. And I watched that post credit scene at work on my break. And then I was like, you want me to go back to work after this? Yeah. I was like, because I'd, I'd watched a couple of times I didn't get up early enough because the episodes were longer than most Mando episodes are. Mm-hmm. And so I'd finish on my coffee break. Um, I don't have an office with a door you know, panopticon cubicle style. <laughs> uh, so I'd go and people would be walking by and I'm like, okay, even if I'm on my break, I look like I'm slacking off. I should probably go somewhere. So I go into my coworker's office with my headphones and I'm like, I'm taking my 15 and I'm watching a show in your office. And he's like, I don't care what you do. <laughs> so my coworker got to watch my face go through like every stage of grief at some point. <laughs> but yeah, that scene is because there was just... An idea. I saw people on Twitter like, I wonder what they're making for the Empire. Could they be making, you know, parts for something like the Death Star and then actually seeing it go into place into that dish when you know what happens? It's like, oh, oh, it hurts. Everything hurts and I'm dying. Happy Thanksgiving from Lucasfilm, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Lucasfilm's like, you know what? Let's let's. Let's ruin a lot of Thanksgivings. It's fine. Pretty much, yeah. What I love about that, that Narkina 5 is this place that has this kind of, you know, the, the two parts of like, it's the prison, but it's also a factory in there. And, you know, we spend so much time with seeing them, you know, going through all these shifts and so on. Is that, that you know, people talked about, and of course, I think it is absolutely relevant in terms of the real world connections about the commentary on mass incarceration and how, you know, Cassian is in there because they have these, these new sentencing guidelines and people are getting thrown in for these kind of ridiculous offenses. And even the comments on prison labor, kind of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure that's where you were going. Pardon. That's, that's exactly where I was going, which is that like the idea of that all of like everything that is happening in there and particularly with the journeys of characters, particularly someone like, with a, like a Kino Loy as being, as having these kind of overt analogies to, to class and to labor where it's like, on the one hand they're doing this labor, but it's kind of gamified in this way where it's like, Oh, you have to, if you make the most in your group, then you're going to get the taste in your food. And if not, you get zapped. It's also something that's sort of done because it keeps people from being too close of a unit. Like, yes, I think the empire kind of messed that up because they did let like that particular corner, like they kept teams the same every day. Yeah. And that, that made people be loyal there. Obviously Melshi and Cassian will die for each other in the future. Like, you know, just bros being pals do, but I'm going to make this whole show gay. Sorry. 
um, okay. but that idea that because if you win, it means somebody else loses. Mm-hmm. There's some resentment of, oh my God, they sped up just so I'd get shocked instead of them. Yes. And it keeps people from forming loyalties. It's the same idea as encouraging people to snitch on each other. Yeah. And, you know, prison, um, can't think of the word informants, I guess. Yeah. Keeps people from being loyal to each other because if you're not loyal to each other, then you won't unite against the guards. They're, you know, betting on the fact that each one of those people is only out for themselves. And when they unite for the greater good. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with, with Keno Loy in that equation, like there's so much in him that's pretty much an anal like his whole arc and his whole story, there is an analogy for you know class consciousness essentially, where it's like, you know, we meet him and at first he's an overseer, in- basically. Yes. Not not to go like full, you know, not like as a full slavery reference, but he's somebody who almost the idea of that in, you know, the South was that, oh, you know, the poor people would be united against me, but I'm going to put one group of them over the other. Yes. To keep them from uniting against me. And that's the thing. It's like that, you know, the the managers at Domino's, I don't know, pick a minimum wage crappy franchise job. They're all basically everybody who works there's on the same level. But by elevating, you know, some people to manager or whatever, you start to get people not uniting when they're really so much closer to each other than they are to, you know, Papa John, the billionaire. Yeah, exactly. Like he's this, he's someone who's on the one hand, a prisoner, like all the other prisoners, but at the same time, he's in this position of authority and he goes through most of it that we see thinking that, well, if I just keep my head down, if I don't cause trouble, if I, if I don't look up, yeah, exactly. If I don't look up, then I'll get through my shifts and then I'll get out. We and will then, actually be making every reference to Rogue One that we have in yes. Andor. Yeah. Oh, they mentioned and, Wubani at one point. Yeah, they did. And I was the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen <laughs> <laughs> for about five seconds. Yes. But you have to imagine it because I watch it at six in the morning. So it's me in my pajamas, which may or may not be Star Wars themed on any given day with my dog in my lap pointing at like my iPad because I'm too tired to get out of bed and turn the television on so I'm watching on a tiny screen picking up every time I'm, I'm going I understood that reference yes it's just and they worked so many of them in so skillfully and we get the same idea from Narkina 5 as we later do from Wubani and what you find out yeah. about in the Rogue One novelizations and Rebel Rising and from what we see in the movie about Wubani is this isn't an isolated case. It's different because Wubani, they take people out to work. But they say, you know, droids would do it faster. I think, I think it's Rogue One that it's the droids would do it faster, but having people do it, prisoners do it, works better for the Empire's like mind games. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same. I mean, the same thing you really see through this, that Jin and Cassian's lives are very similar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They've been through these similar experiences. And then for somebody like Aquino, like the the fact that the thing that is the breaking point for him that gets him to start turning away is that revelation of you know, the, the mystery of what happened to the guard, to the to the workers on on the second level. And then the discovery that, 
oh, actually, they're just reshuffling prisoners through the complex and no one's actually getting out. And to hide so, their screw up, they killed a floor of people, which you know that people are completely expendable to the Empire. But there's knowing that and hearing them say that they're all dead. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and also even as much as the Empire's not letting people out, like in our, the speaking obviously we both live in the U.S., the U.S. justice system where there's no rehabilitation and recidivism is so high because of that, it's the same thing. They're sending people out of prison just for them to be punished, you know, with not being able to get a job because they're a felon, so they end up back in prison. It's the same reshuffling, just not on the level the empire is, but there's there's a parallel there. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, that being on the one hand the the kind of turning point for him. And then when you get to, you know, again, one of the other great monologues in the show, which is Keno Loy's speech to the other prisoners, the way that you see how, how he's gone through this journey and how the message that he's given to this, these prisoners is all about solidarity, where he's talking about, he has that line where he's like, if you see someone and they're lost or they fall over, help them, pick them up, show them where they need to go. So he's gone on this all arc of, I just got to keep my head down and get through my shifts and I can get out and play by the system saying, no, we're actually all in this together. We got to help each other to get freed. Oh, that was such a good, again, Andy Circus. Oh, he's killing it. And this was so good. Like, please, please let someone have like picked Kino up by the back of his shirt and made it to safety. And then Cassie and Melchie, they can't be the only ones that made it out, right? I, I really hope not. They're yeah, probably I, I the really... only ones that made it out because this is Rogue One and my heart. Apparently they just like stomp on my heart a few times and then they grind it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just that whole idea of, and it's the thing that obviously, again, by having people be shocked because, you know, somebody else worked faster, it's that whole solidarity they were trying not to build. Yes. It's the solidarity that the rebels were supposed to have on Aldani. In the end, yeah. they didn't. No. But here, you know, with absolutely no other choice, you can die now or you can die later. Yeah. One way out. Exactly. Which somebody shortly after this episode aired, um, I was doing a show where it's like a failed brother and sister and it, it it's implied that their way out, they would try. They don't end up doing it, but is murder suicide so somebody said oh you know it's not a weapon for them it's a way out and i started mm. chanting one way out and then i remembered not everybody has seen andor and now oh, i look Lord. like an idiot oh my god my friend's like what what do you mean one way out i'm like oh my god can you please catch up on star wars television and then try and talk to me <sighs> but uh, yeah i mean just you know, like I said, everything that happens in that environment and the, the the journeys that these characters go on and how pivotal it is for Cassian in terms of starting to become that leader figure as being one of the, the kind of organizers of the like like of the prison break and then oh, being yeah. the person who kind of pushes Kino. Because he wanted absolutely no part of it after Eldani. He's like, Nope, I am not leading this party. I need to know that you're not going to stab me, but I'm going to sit here and, you know, talk to the weird kid with the manifesto. Yeah. But 
like then he's like no how many guards are there and then the day Kino said no more than 12 and then it went to black and you just heard <sighs> all of Star Wars Twitter scream at 3 a.m. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was us. That was us. <sighs> yeah, I was just like, oh, now I have to go to wait. I have to go to work. <laughs> it's like the time I tried to bake cookies with my mom after the season two finale of The Mandalorian. I'm like, I'm still oh processing God. a lot of things. Yeah. My mom's like, what? I'm like, but but they took baby out. <laughs> my mom's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, good. But yeah, God. And then from all of this, we go into the finale on Ferex, which do you have a favorite arc of Andor? Because I, I kind of had it as like you have the op- the three episode opening on Ferex. You have mm-hmm. the three episodes on Aldani. There's an episode that kind of eh, stands alone. Yeah. Like it's the kind of transition middle one. Then there's three on um Nerkina five. Nerkina five. And then there's the two episode finale on Ferex, which that's kind of how I divide the arcs, is they weren't perfectly arcs, but there was a, you know, it, it, I think the finale was my favorite, even though I loved it all. Yeah. I mean, the the finale is yeah, it's really good. Like I love I think talking about the finale is a, is a good way to kind of circle back to where we started the conversation and sort of because wrap we're up. not breaking records today. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I still want to be invited on for my hour long bonus episode called "Why Space Lesbians Are Important." Actually, yes. Like you know what I love about that ending and like what happens on Ferrix there with the outbreak and all of that. And it sort of goes back to some of the things that we we're talking about with resistance and so on. It's like we've had in Star Wars, you know, you have the big battles, like you've got your, your Yavins, your Endors and so on. Then you've got the kind of next rung down is, you know, something like Lothal on rebels where it's like, it's, it's fighting to liberate this whole planet from the empire. And then you get to, you know, you, you get to the season finale and it's, you know, it's literally just like, it's a block in this one city. It's got this almost like sort of Stalingrad feel like you're fighting every building, you're fighting for every street to win. I mean, it's kind of, um, not perfectly, but like the, the finale of uh, Boba Fett. Yeah. Where it's all that urban. Have you seen the movie version of Lemos? I've not, no. <sighs> No, um, in the stage show of Les Mis, there's a song that's the echoing finale. It's called One Day More. It's the first time that all the separate storylines weave into the big finale going into the second act, which follows one main storyline more than the different threads. That was the penultimate episode of Andor was all of those things. And then in the movie version, not in the show version, there's a there's a song, um, the song Do You Hear the People Sing takes place at a funeral mm. outside. Um, so it's like as this funeral of this guy's coming by, they start to sing under their breath. Oh, do you hear the people sing to me the song of angry men? And then a riot breaks out at the funeral. Yeah. And it was a big, a big thing that I was feeling that coming as we were going in the one day more of all the different storylines weaving into this showdown. And then I'm like, oh, I see what they're going to do with this funeral. They're going to build a barricade. 
yeah, that whole ending there, you know, it does it does such a good job of just building the tension all the way through where it's like they're originally it's like originally they were going to get denied the permit. But then Deidre's like, no, give them the permit for this particular time. And then you see that actually they're just going to they're like, screw it. We're going to we're going to do it on our terms. And then the God, what time grappler? Yes. He friggin' Sparta kicks the guy out of the dark. Did I send you? I found a meme that just said, this is Ferrix, and it's the guy. Oh my god, I'll have to, when I find it, I'll send it to you. Yes, please do. fantastic. But just that whole, (laughs) like, the slow marching band, it kind of reminded me of almost, um, are you familiar with the New Orleans jazz funeral? Yeah. That that same the music was that same kind of thing, where it was the you know slow solemn processional and then it picked up a little bit to be uh, like a celebration of life a little bit in there. Then you actually got to see Marva, you know, talking in that speech. Oh my God, Fiona Shaw, please win an Emmy for this speech. Mm -hmm. They're gonna have to add more Emmys to get all the Emmys. I think the show should get. And you've obviously heard that originally she was going to say, fuck the empire, mm-hmm. which I mean, really, it was heavily implied. Yes. But and then the my the bit that really got me was the guy who was, you know, throwing the, the cloak over um, B2. Yeah. To try to, because at that point, the information is dangerous that she's yes. giving and everything. And somewhere I have my other meme that shows the guy kicking over B2 and it's got Brasso with uh, um, laser eyes that says, you have chosen death. <laughs> and it's great. And I'm going to have to dig. I'm going to I'm going to dig out my Andor meme collection and send it to you for, you know, please do reasons. But yeah, that thing of, oh my God, they're going to riot, not because of anything anybody's doing, but the words someone is saying. Yes. And that's so important that our words are that. I just, and then, please, when I die, someone cremate me and hit fascists with a brick made of my ashes. (laughs) I only have one wish. It's just amazing. Just that whole symbolism we just all need a fan like Brasso, really. And he's sitting there. Mm -hmm. He is in his uniform. He is leading... Like, get you a man that can both lead the marching band and hit fascists with a brick. Yes. And did you see the actor who played him? Somebody cut, um, I think it's Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name, over the riot <laughs> scene. And the actor who plays him put it on his Instagram because he's like, this oh is the coolest God. thing ever. I'm like, sir, you have understood the assignment. That's great. That's really great. I love it when people get like super into their character. I just want to yeah. find out like the actor that played Nimic is actually like, yeah, no, no, I'm actually, I'm actually reading like all of this philosophy. <laughs> but yeah, that funeral, like as the tension built, mm-hmm. you just knew it was going to explode, but you didn't know when and you didn't know how and you didn't know who was not going to make it out. Yeah. I expected a higher death toll, to be honest. Me too. I was shocked that we lost no major character. Because they're waiting to hurt me next year. Yes, in 2024. Don't remind me I have to wait that long. Never mind. Okay, I used to be a Sherlock fan, where you'd wait two years for three episodes, (laughs) and then you'd wait three more years 
for two episodes. (laughs) I can do this. But yeah, this, that explosion and like the undercut back and forth. It was like just the right amount of time with each storyline. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know. It was perfection. I have no notes. No, I absolutely agree with you. Like, yeah, all of that, the the tension building and and the leading up to the procession, Marva's speech. I mean, you know, you were talking about the power of words in that context. And I mean, so much of what she's talking about there kind of plugs into where we started the conversation about the nature of fascism, because she's talking so much about how we were asleep. We were just trying to, you know, we were paying our taxes, we were doing our work. Mm -hmm. And all the while this threat was growing. And you know, we weren't paying attention to it. And she was they talking had about, each other and that's what they yeah. had guarded each other against it. But eventually you can't. Yeah. And, you know, talking about how like she would, you know, she was, uh, she would avoid the place where Clem had been hung. Like she would walk around that square. And then she's talking about like how, if I were alive now, I would walk through, like walk through it. I would wake up every day and fight all like all of those kind of thematic stuff, like going back to the, yeah, the, the, the kind of the, the creep of authoritarianism and the need to be vigilant to it and the danger and the ease of complacency, I think, is really powerful. So like that speech is just so relevant to so many situations. It's just so good. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, the way that everything explodes when when B2 is kicked over. <laughs> I'm sorry you kicked my droid. Now you must die. Yeah, pretty much. And then you get all the fighting and you get that like particularly like one of the moments in the midst of that where I felt like a particular high amount of tension is the moment when Deidre is trying to escape and she gets caught by the crowd. And like there was a few seconds where like, oh, is this going to be some sort of like Ceausescu? They're going to like, you know, put her up against the wall and just like shoot her. Like it really you had that feeling of like, oh, my God, what's about to happen to her? I was honestly really stressed as much as I don't want you know, I don't like what Deidre stands for. The woman in the hands of the mob of men right. really freaked me out. I did not see it going well for Deidre. And then creepy stalker dude saved her and they're going to be bad for each other. They are yeah. going to be bad for each other. Yep. But yeah, no, that was just just as yeah, obviously someone who's grown up in our culture where it's like, mm, that's not a situation you want to be in. I was terrified for her. Right, 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 right. It ends in such a powerful way and then, you know, leaves all these characters with threads to kind of move forward where you've got on the one hand, you've got you know, a lot of the fairy folks, Brasso, Bix, you know, B2, all of them, they're, they're going to the, to the Genji moon. And then you've got, you know, whatever is going to happen with Deidre and Cyril in that area. And then, of course, you've got the final thing with with Cassian going to Luthen and being like, you know, kill me or take me in. I don't know that he really would have not, like, he was serious. Like, I think Cassian honestly didn't care whether he lived or died. He's pretty broken by his experiences in this show. My read of that is I I think he went into it probably having a good idea that Luthen was not going to do the kill me option. He's like, probably not, but it could really save us all some. (laughs) (laughs) Luthen, the look on his face is like, this man is going to be a pain in my ass. Yes. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, he figured that he wouldn't kill him, but still like. 
from the Cassian we saw before who was going to do anything he could to survive to you know yeah. offer himself like that is pretty it's big. It's a bold move, yeah. Yeah. I just needed B2 to be okay because oh, after yeah. Me the, too. the penultimate episode where Rosso would stay in the house with him so he could mourn Marva. Oh, my God. Oh, God. If, oh, that was tough. What is it about droids that just make it so easy to just cry like a baby over them? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like that when in the finale shot, when they're, you know, when the funeral procession is going and then there's the one shot where the camera lingers on B2 just kind of rolling by as part of the procession. Like I almost watching it that Wednesday morning, I I almost lost it in that moment. He's he's such a good boy. He is. He is. Yeah. Um, Also, I was really, really worried because somebody told the ship to climb. Oh God. After K2. (laughs) I'm just like, yep. And also, I mean, Kino was yelling for people to climb mm-hmm. shortly before. You know, it's it's fine. I'm just like, yeah. Know, I honestly kind of expected their ship to just blow up because that's what I'm expecting from this show. Is I'm like, I'm I'm here and I'm ready for Star Wars to hurt me again. Yeah, but no, everybody's okay, and now we have to wait. Yep, now we do have to wait. So. By way of kind of wrapping up or closing out the discussion of Andor, I want to ask you about three favorites from this first season. So first question is, favorite episode out of the 12? Um, Probably number 12, Rick's Road. Rick's Road? All right. Yeah, that's a really good choice. I think, oh, which one am I going to go with? I think I might say... Maybe the third Aldani episode. Ooh, when we the, get the, the heist. heist. Yeah, that was a good one. That's a really, really good one. I think it was like really well paced. I think it was a lot of good just tension. You're but just you lost in it the your comrade. Time. Yes, but I mean, yeah, that's the yeah. I lost my comrade, crushed under literal money. <laughs> we died under the weight of capital. <laughs> exactly. He literally died there under the weight a, of there capital. There is a metaphor here. Mm-hmm. Yes, he sure did. Second favorite. Favorite new character. Val. Val? You knew it was going to be one of the lesbians. Yes, I I did. Yeah. I I thought maybe Brasso. Although Brasso is a really close second. Yeah. Because Um, I love that man. He is the friend we all deserve. And he's like, I'm just going to go hit. You know what I'm going to do for my friend Marva? I'm going to use her brick to hit a fascist with. Exactly. But no, just Bell and um, just gives a lot of intriguing possibilities mm-hmm. for a future Definitely. and as a character. And also the representation. I love it. Just, yeah. I, I cannot. My sister would text me if she happened to watch an episode before me, which is rare, but she did once or twice. <laughs> and I'd get a message, lesbians are back. I'm like, yes. In surprise to no one who has listened to this conversation, my favorite character is one comrade Nemec. Give it to him. R.I.P. Yeah, my mine would be Vel with uh, runners up pretty close of Kino and uh, Brasso. Good choices. Third favorite, and I mean this is a hard one because there's a lot of them in the in this season. But favorite line. That's what a reckoning sounds like. <sighs> That's a good one. It's so good. That's a good one. Mine is 
maybe a bit of an unusual pick. It is not any of the like anything from any of the, the big monologues, although again, they're great choices there. But my favorite, I think, is just probably because of context and also just the delivery of it. It is in the penultimate episode. It is when it is in the scene when Cyril is getting the call from his like his ex-coworker and they're having the the crappy phone connection. And he's learning about like Cassian, like, and his mom died and he might be coming back. And then it, it cuts out and he's like, he doesn't know what's happening. And then it, it cuts to, to Edie, who's listening to all of it. And she just says, the mysteries of your former triumphs have been vanquished. I can sleep soundly now. <laughs> I love her. So good. Did you know she was in uh, Harry Potter too? Yeah. I just, I knew I knew her from somewhere. And then I looked it up and I'm like, wait, that's where I know her from. There's yep, really only like Fink. six British actors in the world. <laughs> and we're much. all in Harry Potter. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. All right. So yeah, on that note, we will wrap up our conversation of season one of Andor. There will, of course, eventually be a season two conversation to come. I really hope that it does so well that they go back to doing more than two seasons. Oh, that would be great. That really would. Just so good. Did you see um, this is the first Disney Plus show that they broadcast on uh, network TV? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On Thanksgiving. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know what people need on their Thanksgiving? Anti-fascism. Exactly. Because you know what? We haven't fought enough. (laughs) I have a meme that shows a bottle of wine and it like marks it off. And like the first little bit is, oh, grandma, you look lovely. The second one is, guys, I think everybody should be able to afford health care. And the third one is. Cousin, you are a fascist and the revolution will not spare you. I've seen that one, yeah. I am constantly at the bottom of <laughs> Oh, well, thank <sighs> you so much for having me. It has been so much fun. Um, also, tell your wife that I totally did not break the record. Yeah, I, I, I will let her know. <laughs> I'm doing great. Meg, I shut up occasionally. No, I don't actually. Yeah, thank you for Rachel uh, for for coming back on the show, talking some Andor. We will no doubt reconnect when the second season airs, and we can we can talk about that as well. Uh, yep, you know where to find me. Yep, and and speaking of, let all the listeners know where they can find you on the internet. Well, I am on Twitter as long as that ship stays afloat, um, because I'm going down with the ship at Built on Stardust. Um, I'm also on Hive as built on stardust i am on instagram if that's your preferred method as stardust rebel you can find me on the followers of the force when we record we're hoping to start again soon we've taken a hiatus because of life and i'm on starlight beacon transmissions as well so you can find me there um i'm also the one that runs the podcast account we are still collecting money for what choice um the fundraiser for the national abortion federation and you can find that on twitter at what choice 22 All right. Wonderful. Once again, thank you for coming on, Rachel. Thank you so much. So what to expect on the next episode? For episode 47, I'm going to be doing an episode and tackling a topic that I've been wanting to do for a long time that has been in my kind of ideas board. Metaphorically speaking, I don't actually have a literal ideas board for a long time. And now I've just gotten to the point where I want to pull the trigger on this idea because it's one that I I really enjoy and want to tackle, which is the subject of droid rights. So droid right is something that has come up in the universe of Star Wars, most prominently with the character of L337 and Solo. But I want to tackle it more, and I want to sort of make a case for droid rights and for thinking why we should see 
droids as a kind of having a, occupying a kind of equal moral status to I don't know what we call organic beings. And for that conversation to make that case, I am going to be pulling from the philosophy of animal rights and specifically the work of the philosopher Peter Singer and his book Animal Liberation. I'm going to be talking a little bit in that episode about the philosophy of animal rights and in particular Singer's argument and his case for recognizing and respecting the moral rights of non-human animals and then talking about how we can sort of apply and think about that in the context of Star Wars and the rights of droids. So look out for that episode. In the meantime, as I said, you know, at the top of the episode, if you are new to the show via the Clashing Sabers Network, do please go check out the earlier episodes of the show. There are 45 other ones. Most of them are about as long as this one. This is very much a larger view of the Force brand. So there is a lot of content for you to consume. So go catch up. There's, there's some really good stuff in there. Episodes that I'm super, super proud of. Some great guests. So, so go check those out. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please do that. Please rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. And until next time, look for the force and you will always find me.